This is the More to the Story podcast with Dr. Andy Miller. We hope you guys enjoyed today's conversation. You're going to want to hang in here for today's podcast. This is a wild story of a guy who was an alcoholic at the age of 14. A few years later, was just living in his car, had nowhere else to go. But then an amazing thing happens as he comes into a relationship with Jesus. He ends up moving clear across the country. He attends Asbury University and then eventually makes his way to serve as a lawyer. And now he's a financial executive and a pastor of a small country church in Texas. This is a wild story of my friend, the wild story of my friend, Scott Harkless. So check this out on today's More to the Story podcast. Also, just so you know, this podcast is brought to you by a couple of sponsors. One is Wesley Biblical Seminary, where I work. We have a variety of degrees that we offer for people, but we don't just exist to offer degrees. Instead, we have certificate programs, lay mobilization programs, and we have uh, many people who come and just audit classes for a much cheaper price. They don't get the academic credit for it, but there are a lot of ways that we're trying to help people who are leaders in their local church, but also people go deeper in their faith. So we love for you to look at Wesley Biblical Seminary, which happens to be the most racially diverse, has the most racially diverse student body in the country, according to the Association of Theological Schools, and is firmly committed to the authority of Scripture and also to the reality and promise of the holy life. So check us out at wbs.edu. Also, this podcast is brought to you by Bill Roberts and his financial advising firm. You can check him out at williamhroberts.com. He specializes in helping people develop a plan and actualize that plan to get to retirement or whatever their financial goals are. And he's particularly good and gifted and experienced in working with ministry leaders. And he's done this particularly for folks who serve in the Salvation Army. He kind of understands those distinctives. He's a generational Salvationist like me, but he's committed to the mission of the church through the Salvation Army. And I think you'll find that his financial advice is consistent with biblical wisdom. So check him out at williamhroberts.com. Now, we'll move on to this story with Scott Harkless. God bless you. Look, you have got to hang in for this podcast. Today, I have my friend on, Scott Harkless, and you're not going to want to miss, miss his story. So just stay in here with me for every second. You are going to be blessed by it. Scott! I am so glad to have you on the podcast. How are you, man? I'm doing well, man. I love being with you. Now, you have to know, you're going to hear it from me. I I get a little, little uh, in a place where I'm uh, kind of around somebody who's like a big brother to me. I've been, I'm the oldest kid in my family, but when I got to Asbury University, two guys became basically my big brothers, Scott Harkless and Jeremiah Mullins, man. And they took me in and, and no matter where I am in life, they're gonna they're gonna seem like they're just that little bit older a little bit wiser men so i might be in a place where you might see me submitting to my big brother here (laughs) well as as your big brother we've been awful we've i've certainly been awful proud of of watching your progression through the years and staying in touch with you which has been special for me Uh, because i've known you for a long time that's right i've known you since you were in high school that's right so, so I came on a visit weekend and I came into that room with a Scott and Jeremiah and I got right. initiated <laughs> into the way of second East, uh, yeah, Johnson right. second East. Right. Yeah. We probably had a picture of your grandfather on our door. You uh, did, <laughs> Commissioner Andy Miller for the uninitiated. Uh, what a great man he was. Yeah. So anyways, and welcome everybody to the Mortis story podcast. And this is going to be a time where I hear a great story from my friend here, Scott, 
And, you know, I already indicated here, he and I went to Asbury University together. He's been somebody who's been an encourager to me through the years. But there's a, there's a huge story uh, for in his life. And honestly, Scott, I'm not sure I really know the full story. And I don't sure I'll get the full story here, but there was this wild thing. Like it's not very often you run into somebody at a Christian liberal arts institution who says, yeah, I came in through a Salvation Army's rehab program. And I knew that was there. And I knew there's a powerful testimony to it. And a lot of times when you're in a world like the Salvation Army, you're familiar with some of those stories, but every one of them is distinct. So like, let's go back a little bit. Like yep. how, before you got to Salvation Army, how did you end up at a Salvation Army rehab facility? So I'll give you the sort of cliff notes version. Okay. Um, so, you know, I, I started off, you know, I come from a broken home, right? It's a okay. very similar, very kind of, you know, unfortunate story that is all too common in the recovery world. Um, my parents split up when I was young and, and you know, and I was very disillusioned. Uh, and in middle school, <clears throat> You know, I was a rebellious kid, kind of a skater punk, you know, at the time yeah. and uh, started drinking at 13, probably alcoholic by 14. Wow. And um, started using, you know, cocaine and, and methamphetamine and, and found that methamphetamine was my drug of choice by 15. Wow. And then uh, through a series of uh, problems, let's just call it that, you know, yeah. left home at, at, at 15 years of age, was on my own at it basically 16. Wow. And, um, and, you know, you never want to give a 16 year old who's got a, a burgeoning drug habit and a strong problem with alcohol, ultimate freedom, but that's what happened. And wow. so, you know, I just lived, um, that life trying to survive, right. Not doing a very good job of it. Um, and this is in California, this is right. in California. Yeah. yeah. It so I started off in, I, I was raised in Fresno. Okay. Um, but I think the bulk of my damage was probably done in Northern California, um, up in the Placerville, El Dorado County area. Yeah. And um, where methamphetamine was very, very strong. And uh, so I went there with a the habit and then it blossomed and uh, it did a lot of damage there and, you know, to myself and just in life. And well, uh, back up. So I mean, yeah. like, it's wild to me. You'll have to, I'm sure there's people who understand this, but you said you're an alcoholic at 14. Yes. Like, how does that, how is that possible? Help, help somebody like me understand that. Like what, yeah, how so do you it, have access? Like, what, how do you become an alcoholic at 14? Well, you know, there's a variety of ways you do that, right? Most of it is binge drinking on the weekends, right? Yeah. That's basically how you fulfill that need. And then you, you, what they call pimping beer. You basically just go to what we always did was went to the university because college kids will always buy beer for you. Hmm. And, uh, and so we would just go and, sit by the 7-Eleven and wait for someone to buy us beer. And they would all, wow. we'd always find somebody within 10, 15 minutes to buy us beer or hard alcohol, whatever the case may be. And, um, and, and then you have friends that are older, right. Who will buy it yeah. for you, you know, that kind of stuff. And so it, it's actually quite simple. Um, and people, you can always steal your parents' alcohol, but, but that only goes so far. Uh, right. But that's basically, it's mainly binge drinking. Most, I think, students, you know, aren't probably drinking throughout the week. It's too hard to maintain that, but it, on the weekends, right. you're, you know, you're laying it on thick and that's what, that's what I was doing. You know, just, just a bunch of loose rebellious kids, you know, basically running the streets. And so, you know, you fill that space with something. Um, and, you know, I think most kids that find themselves in that circumstance, 
you do some of it for, you know, just for the, you know, the friendship aspect, the bonding aspect of it. Um, but for those that take it too far, like me, you're, you're always masking some sort of mm, thing, mm-hmm. pain. you know, you're, you're trying to quiet the internal storm yeah. that, that brews within you, right. That you really don't have a way, you don't have any mechanism to deal with it. You don't know how to deal with it. And so it, it, you know, it, it reveals itself in these distorted ways. And, yeah. um, and that's exactly what happened with me, but yeah, that's how that actually works. But what, you know, what happens is, and, and I think this is very true of many people in recovery, once you start drinking, it opens you up to a whole different world. And then there's other things available. Mm, and mm. I think the old adage of, you know, peer pressure and all that, I, there's obviously some truth to that. I never felt pressured. I was more curious. Interesting. Right? So if alcohol does this, then what does marijuana do? And if marijuana does this, then what does cocaine do? And then if cocaine, you know, what does acid do? And then what does PCP do? And then, you know, on and on it goes. So, um, so that was sort of uh, my progression. Everybody's story is a little different, right? Sure, a lot of people sure. have family members that use, and so it's you know right there in front of them uh, all the time from a very early age. I've seen everything under the sun, frankly. Mm. Gang, gang, people get involved in gangs, and the gangs are using and they're dealing. And so there's there's so many different stories that I've seen, but um, almost all of them have that sort of internal storm you know, right. that internal pain that they're dealing with. They would never have chosen that life right. had, had they had some degree of peace and sense about how they fit in the world. Right. Um, and, and of course, most I've met have regretted it, you know? Yeah. So uh, it's a, it's a tough life, man. It's a really tough life. It starts off fun, all fun and games and it, and uh, even a sense of adventure to it, but it quickly goes south on you you know, where right. you're not able to have fun or you're not able to have joy. You're not able to relate to people, but for this sort of element of drugs and alcohol. And yeah. that becomes your community, right? It becomes yeah. the community, the center of your life. It becomes sort of what you do and what your purpose is. Right. It really does become your purpose. I met a heroin addict one time that I was in rehab with. I'll never forget it. And coming off heroin is very, very hard. And I didn't have, I never did opiates. So I, I didn't, I don't know that experience, but I did live with him and watched him toss and turn throughout the night. And we were all very worried about him because he was very seriously addicted. The one thing he told me, which always stuck with me, um, was that Scott, I always knew what my day was going to be like because Mm. I was going to get heroin that day. Mm. One way or another, I was going to get it. Now that's ominous. And he meant it to be ominous because the things that he had done were not good, Mm. but he knew with a certainty that day, the day that he woke up, that he was going to get some that day. Wow. See how certain that is, the purpose he has, right? Yeah. It's, it's your whole life is defined for you. And, and there's a sense of comfort in that singularity of purpose that the culture can't replicate, right? Yeah. Spirituality can replicate it. Our faith can replicate it. But because we do have all things reconciled to that singular purpose of serving the Lord. But apart from that, it's, it's, a, it's a very all-consuming lifestyle. Right. And it does consume everything. So I was at a very young age. Yeah. yeah, that was all, this is all like when you're a teenager, like my son, Andy, is 14 right now. And you have kids that age yourself. I so have a child who's 17. I have a daughter who's 15 and I have a 13 year old and I have a 10 year old. Wow. And when I think about the things that I did, I shudder to think of any of my children doing what I did. Shudder. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it the amount of stuff I went through, the amount of people, the, the 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 debauched people that I came into, you know, encountered because they were all older than me. I was very young. I entered into this world at 16 years of age. You know, I had wow. to get a, 
I, you know, I did had you, get a job? I lived, did you quit school at 16. I did. I quit school and I, and I, I worked in, um, as a certified nurse's aide on the night shift, right. To facilitate sort of my sleeping habits. Right. And, um, and so I tried the best I could to, to keep it together. I mean, you know, you, you, you still need to pay the bills and you still need to eat mm. and all the, I mean, most addicts would tell you the same thing. They try to keep it together as best they can. Um, so, uh, so you try, it's very, very hard, right. Mm -hmm. And you try to manage it as best you can so that it doesn't interfere. Cause you, you know, you still take life seriously. You still love the people that you love. Right. Um, you, you still have friends that you care about and all those things, right. Those don't all go away. I always tell my kids, you know, the world is not orcs and hobbits, right? It, it's, it's yeah. not that clean, right? right so right. you have, you have wonderful people that are addicted that are still trying to be wonderful. Right. They just have this massive monkey on their back, right? This, this stone that they're anchored to that they can't move and they can't function the way they'd like, and they can't love in the way that they'd like. So, you know, you do the best you can. And I would characterize, you know, those years as me doing the best I could. But yeah. ultimately, it's very, very hard to maintain any degree of consistency with anything. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. You know, when you're when you're when you're only sleeping three or four days a month, that's very, very difficult. Wow. So it's it's not it's not easy. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't imagine. I would not recommend that life to anybody. <laughs> yeah. So in this period, like up to 16, did you have any interaction, any spiritual interaction in your life? Any like even nominally attending a church or anything like that i was not raised in the church um you know i had i had uh bible believing grandparents which were right. very influential on me um my mom did start going back to church when i was about 13 and at times she would try to force us to go and when she did i would i would act like i was going to sunday school and then i would leave and i would go smoke cigarettes at the market and yeah. then come back after church was over but that was very few times, you know, she finally stopped trying to, right. but I never attended. I mean, not once did I attend. So no, I, I had no doctrine. I had no sense of faith, honestly. I mean, just, just so you have a sense of it, like coming to faith, there were aspects of Christmas that I never even knew or understood that I was like, Oh, that's what that's about. That's what those Christmas cards were talking about. Uh, interesting. I mean, think about that, yeah, right? sure. how ignorant I was. Um, it's a, it's kind of shocking, frankly, how ignorant I was, hmm. you know, given the fact that we, we are raised with the symbols and, and those symbols and the narratives are used in movies that kids watch. Right. But it is like an aha moment when you come to faith and you read scripture and you read the gospels and you go like, oh, <laughs> that's what they're talking about. <laughs> I didn't have a clue. So, yeah. no, I had I, I was raised outside the faith completely. So you're 16, out on your own, working a job, supporting your habit. You have this kind of bit of community. How long is like that phase? Was that was that a, a distinct phase from another? Yeah. So there, there's periods, and most addicts will tell you this: that there, there's periods where they try to keep it straight. They try to get it yeah. back together. So I I I lived for probably a couple of years, three years in Northern California, and then found myself homeless. You know, and I was. <laughs> um, you know, living out of my car, you know, camping at the river. I mean, all that kind of stuff. Wow. Living on friends' couches, bouncing around. So you're like, but, what, 17, 18, 19? So I was, at, I was 19 at that point. Wow. And then I called my dad and said, look, I, I need to uh, kind of get my life back in order. And then I moved to Southern California in Riverside County. And I, and my dad had just opened up his business and I tried to 
I tried to help him in his business, which, you know, all I did was drink. I, I said, I'm going to stop. I'll, I'll stop doing speed. And all I did was drink. Of course, I drank all the time, but I tried to manage that. And, uh, and then what I did, which a lot of addicts would tell you that this is not, a, this is not unique to me. I would do like methamphetamine like once a month just to remind myself why I no longer did it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was my, you know, whatever. So, you know, after a bad breakup, you know, I went headlong right back into it. And, um, and, and again was, you know, my dad was like, you're out, dude, you're out this okay. I, ain't dealing, I ain't dealing with this. Um, and so uh, again, back on the street, right. Just, using bouncing around people's couches sleeping in my car when i slept and you know just just kind of anywhere and everywhere you know all over california right from northern california southern california to fresno i just bounced around wherever there was something happening i would go but i literally i remember i i remember i applied when i went back to community college not to get in front of the story here but um and they asked me uh what my address was for like the last couple of years oh wow to get federal <laughs> federal student loans. And I said, I can give you the license plate of my car. Wow. Like I, I literally don't, if you want me to answer, honestly, I don't have an address to give you. I can give you my mom's address. I had to call them and ask them like, how do I fill this out? Cause I was trying to be honest on everything. Right. I, didn't, right, I, right. Wanted, to be poor. I wanted to be, you know, have integrity. And so when you asked me this question on a federal forum, I didn't want to misrepresent and I didn't know what to say. I, I literally didn't know what to say. I didn't have an address for yeah. know, a couple of years. So. so a couple of years you're living out of your car. So, yeah, I mean, and you know how that works, right? It's, so you're, it's not just like exclusively, like you, you, right, right. You, you stay at friends and, you know, and you stay on couches and, you know, you bounce here, you bounce there. And, but at times your friends don't want you around, right? Mm. I mean, you know, you've, you've done all that you can do. You've kind of vampired off them as long as you can. And then you got to bounce to the next one. But at times there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere yeah. to, there's nowhere to go. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I've stepped out of my car. So I'm guessing too in this period was it like did that lead to you being in imprisoned or in jail or like was there that type of thing going on too? Well, you know, you have you have little. I mean, most most addicts have little tiny run-ins. You know, yeah, major, right, just stupid stuff, um, you know, DUI, that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, so you know, you have you have these you know these issues that come up, which are which are endemic to that lifestyle but nothing nothing major um you know i would say but but you do have um any number of issues that are and you see where it's headed right i mean as an as you start maturing into this and all your friends right are are headed down this path and most of my friends were older than me because i i i came into this world at a young age right most of my friends were 23 24 into their 30s you see what's happening to them you know you know where this is headed yeah and um and so that was that realization um, certainly was um, in my mind, you know, in my mind of, of like, man, this is not going well. Uh, um, so yeah, I, I, I bounced around and, and um, lived that life for longer than I'd cared to. Uh, I remember the, what really did it for me was I was always, I'm still this way. It's my nature, right? You don't change your nature just because, you know, you still are who you are. I still feel like me. I don't feel like I'm completely different than I was then. Obviously I've mm. made very different life choices, but you're still fundamentally you. Yeah. Uh, I'm always been a happy go lucky person. I'm a gregarious person. You know, I consider myself a person that loves life. And even then, 
So I never have been sort of gothic or morbid, but there was a point where things were so bad um, that I did end up, you know, thinking of taking my life, right? right. And, uh, because, because it felt like life, the, the path the life was on, um, it, it had nothing but a bad conclusion, right? Hmm. And I had friends that had died. I had friends that have overdosed. I had friends that were killed. I had friends that went to prison. You know, you see all these things and, and you see there's a sense of fatalism and, and an inevitability to this sort of world that you're living in. And then you see the, you know, I'd, I'd go home and visit my mom from time to time. And I had really long blonde hair, right? I had really long. You know, oh, interesting. I did not, yeah, you would, did not realize you would, that. Yeah, you wouldn't know that. Were you like a skater? Or that been like? Well, I started off as a youngster, sort of a skater punk, but more. I've always, you know, I'll always love rock and roll, and so it went from like punk rock to thrash metal to heavy, you know, to. So you know, so I, you know, I was basically just a metalhead. But but okay, uh, it's it's hard for me to see that because pretty much like what I think about you from like later in your story, you're kind of a clean cut college Republican sort of guy, you know. So this. I have to back up to use my imagination to think about yeah. what you might look like. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So think of like James Hetfield from Metallica in his early days, right? There you that's go. Probably, that's probably what I looked like, you know? Uh, um, you know, I had really long hair. Uh, that was actually one of the issues I had with the hair. I see they made me cut my hair. I had, I had not okay. cut my hair in like five years, you know? So it was very, very long. And, uh, you know, we, we called it, we called ourselves long hairs. I mean, that's, that's you know, <laughs> Northern California. There was long hairs, right? Is he long hair? He's a long hair, right? So, <laughs> okay. it's, uh, you know, this tribal sort of identification, but um, yeah. So, so point, I, yeah, go ahead. To so the point when you get to ARC, I mean, do you want to tell anything else up to the Well, ARC? I was going to say, this is how I got to the ARC. So, um, so I, I was driving in the people that know Northern California, and there's probably some that watch this at will. There's a there's a bridge up by Auburn, it's the American River, the, it's the North Fork of the American River. And there's a very large bridge that goes over it, right? And I drove past it and I said, I think, you know, I, I genuinely thought of hanging myself from that bridge, right? So that it would wow. be final, right? So there'd be no wow. going back. And the minute that I realized that I this wasn't some morbid fantasy, because I didn't, I wasn't given to morbid fantasies. Um, I realized that like, this is not good, right? Mm -hmm. This is not good. And I was, you know, I was up for four days and I'd sleep for one day and then I was up for four days and I'd sleep for one day and up for four days and sleep for one day. And I drink myself to sleep. And, mm. and, um, a lot of people die that way. And I knew that, um, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, right? Pick, you know, you know, pick, pick a person, um, uh, Bon Scott from ACDC. There's a lot of people that have died that way. And I was very well aware of that. And so, uh, I called my mom for the first time. Now, mind you, uh, a lot of people will reach back to their parents, ask for help, beg for money. I didn't do that. When I left, when I left and moved out on my own at 16, I never asked for help. Interesting. There was a, it was a matter of pride for me, I guess. And in some ways I'd rather sleep in someone's shed than ask my mom for help. Hmm. Um, you know, or I, you know, whatever the case may be, I, I was not going to ask for help. And so I didn't. And so that, you know, um, when I did call and ask for help, my mom knew that like, this is serious. Mm, and so mm -hmm. I said, mom, I need help. And she said, okay, come home. Come okay. Home. And then, so I got home, this is in Fresno. I went from Northern California then to, to Fresno, Central California. And when I arrived, she said, she said, you can't stay here. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> she said, you can stay here in as much as you go to meetings every single day. 
Okay. And um, and that you find a rehabilitation program to go into. And so um, I knew I had to get off meth. Uh, I didn't think I'd have to stop smoking pot or even drinking, but I knew meth was a problem, right? I knew that was a problem. I knew that was ruining my life. So in my mind, I was like, at that time, I thought to myself, um, yeah, I do need to get off meth. And so maybe she's right. So uh, I said, okay, true story, which I, I, I don't share very often, but I'm going to share with you because it's, it's, a, it's, it's wondrous how God works. So I'm going to this Narcotics Anonymous meeting that my mom was forcing me to go to. And I decided in my arrogance and presumptuousness that I was going to tell everybody in the NA meeting that I was you know, going to do this my way. And of mm. course they have, there's an element in of the 12 steps that talks about the higher power. Yeah. And I was an atheist at the time, a very devout atheist, not an agnostic, but I did not believe I, in God, period. And so um, this higher power stuff offended me and that people kept talking about in these meetings. And so I said, I'm not doing that crud. That's weakness. Mm. Of course, here, here's a drug addict. He can't keep his life <laughs> in order. And he's talking about, you know, this is weakness, but that's where I was at. So I remember this housewife, um, I say housewife because she just looked just like a housewife, right? Sweet, nice, but she had this history of a drug problem, which she had shared. And so I told the whole group, you know, that I was going to do this my way. I'm not doing this higher power stuff. And, you know, I was just really rebellious and sort of going through it. So afterwards, she comes to me and she says, look, we've been, we've all been where you're at, right? Very sweetly. We've all been where you're at and just know that you know, we're on your side. And that when you, when it, when it comes to a moment where you, where you need us, we'll be there for you. And so will God. Um, and I said, I just said, okay, well, thanks. You know, that's nice. Okay. So then fast forward, my mom picks me up from this meeting. I go back home. I need a drink bad. Mm. So I didn't, I already drank my mom's vanilla extract. I already drank all the Bailey's Irish cream, all the things that they basically, any alcohol in the house was gone. Okay. I, I had, and I had wow. no money. I had no money. I mean, I had none. So I went to uh, Vaughn's, which is a grocery store. I'm not proud to say this, but it's an important aspect of how I came to faith. I went to Vaughn's with the sole purpose of stealing a bottle of vodka. And, and I, I went there and then I went, grabbed the bottle. And then I went to the bread aisle where the French bread was. And I was looking at all the security cameras and whatnot and trying to find, you know, which best place would shield me from what they could see up in, up in the, right. up, up in the security area. So I'm getting ready to put this bottle of vodka down my pants so that I can race outside and basically just, you know, go home with it. And I have the bottle, it's almost in my pants. And I look to the left, no one's there. I look to the right and who's at the end of the aisle, but that housewife. Oh, wow. True story. That housewife looks at me. I'm sitting there holding a bottle, clearly getting ready to conceal it. And she just shakes her head. Doesn't say a word. Wow. Doesn't say a word. Doesn't shame me. Just looks at me and shakes her head in sort of sad disappointment. Wow. And at that point I was like, I, I'm, I'm a terrible person. Right. Mm. And so I put the bottle down in the, with the French bread and I leave and I go home and I'm, I'm on my bed and I'm my bed that I was raised in as a child. Mm. I'm just sobbing for what I have become. Wow. You know, sobbing for what I have become. And now at that point I had visited the County rehabilitation program, which was three months. Like I still smoke. I didn't have to cut my hair. 
I thought that's the one I'm going to do. Cause I had to be money. Nobody's going to pay for me to go to rehab. Just so you know, I was raised in a mobile home in Fresno. There's no silver spoon in Scott's background. There's no, maybe a plastic spoon. Uh, so there's no spoon here. Um, plastic spoon. You know, so, uh, so the one program that I went to that was free was the Salvation Army's Adult Rehabilitation Center in Fresno. It was six months. It was the longest of any of them. I had to cut my hair and they had all this weird Bible Jesus talk. And I was like, the one program I know I'm not doing is that one. Okay. Is that one. Yeah. And so there I am sitting on my bed and um, having sort of a moment of clarity where I had really hit bottom, right? Where I realized that I had just made a mess of things, just a Mm -hmm. serious mess of things. Mm -hmm. And so um, I decided in that moment of clarity to do the opposite of what I wanted. This is true because every decision I had made was bad. Every, everything I had done since, you know, 14 years of age, all the way up to the point of 21, I was 21 at the time, uh, was bad. Every decision I made had hurt people, had hurt myself. Right. Um, and I did the opposite of what I wanted to do. So I went and told my stepdad, I'm going to go into the Salvation Army ARC in the morning. Wow. Because that was the opposite of what I wanted. Right. And I figured, I figured if I did the opposite, I might be okay. So. Wow. That's how I it, came it reminds me of the moment in uh, Luke 15 in the story of the prodigal son or the two sons or the prodigal God, however you want to say it, like he's sitting in the with the pigs and it says and he came to himself. Yeah. Right. Like that's kind of like the moment of repentance where there's like something that came like my way is not working. Like I'm going to go. Maybe maybe I can go and be like a hired hand in my in my with my dad. So like, it seems like that was that type of moment for you. It's like, okay, opposite, whatever I want to do, I'm going the opposite way. Yeah. Yeah. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Right. What Paul says, I do. (laughs) So I came to Salvation Army. I came to ARC. Now, obviously, you know, I knew the type of beneficiaries. Now I will tell you at the time, this was 1994. So um, at the time, I was very young for the ARC. That's not right, true now. Right. There's a much younger population now because they're doing a lot of opiates and that takes you down harder, quicker. Right, right, right. speed. You can live on speed for a long time, you know, but, but the opiates are much more disastrous and they're much more addictive. And, and so I see a much younger population in ARCs now. But at the time, there was only three of us that were in our early 20s. Only three. Yeah. Everybody else was like 150. Like, yep. No, hundred. Yeah. It was a hundred. It was a hundred okay. facility. And so, um, you know, most of the guys were 40, 50, right. You know, I mean, they were, this is second, third chance. Some of them coming out of prison, you know, this was right, the right. house, you know, the reacclimation, that kind of court ordered folks. And so, but I hung out with these folks, right. In life. Right. So I felt very comfortable with the beneficiaries, you know, so that part, the camaraderie of it all was actually helpful. Um, but I remember two weeks in, I didn't know anything about doctrine or faith or I, I, I nothing. I didn't know anything. Right. Um, and the Salvation Army minister, um, Captain Heisel at the time, major, major and now he's retired, gave a, a, an invitation to come forward and accept the Lord in, in the chapel there. And I felt, um, I felt this voice it's not really a voice, you know, we always talk about the Holy Spirit gives you a voice, but it's not that it's more like a strong impression, right? But we all translate it as a voice. Now is your time. 
right? That was mm. the impression I had. Now is now is your time. Now is your time. Now is your time. And I found myself almost being directed out of the seat, like honestly, like almost yeah. pulled up out of the seat. And then I found myself walking forward to the altar. And as I walked every step, and I'm not given to emotionalism, by the way. So yeah. every yeah. step I took, I was started crying. I, and it's mm. just floodgates opened. I mean, it was the most, um, for me, a lot of people talk about their conversion as a sort of glorious experience. I didn't have that experience. I wouldn't call it glorious. I would call it okay. fearful. Wow. Uh, because I had never experienced, I had no context. So picture a person that has never seen anybody get converted, that right, doesn't understand sure. how church works, who doesn't understand what the movement of the Holy Spirit does. I had no context for any of this. And all of a sudden, I'm being thrust into this really intense spiritual experience, which I had denied for years, even being possible. And so I, I, I was bewildered and, and scared and, and at the same time grateful because I knew this is what needed to happen. So it was a very, it was a very mixed experience for me. Obviously, mm. I'm glad for it, but I'm just trying, trying to, to figure it out. Yeah, trying, trying to, to assimilate what's going on. And, and just let me back up to give people an idea. The Adult Rehabilitation Center, Scott mentioned, it's a six-month program, but it is like a work therapy-based program. So people come in and most of our family stores that are in metropolitan areas are run by like the people in that work therapy program. So Scott was probably doing some job for those few weeks where he's where you're in the bric-a-brac or, you know, repairing furniture or something like that brick and brick all the little things. it's like little things like my little martin luther here that comes That's in right. it's like you know like oh I don't, we don't want that that won't sell whatever <laughs> and so you're you're doing that very regimented you have to and these these programs do not receive any government funding across the country i'm guessing that there's probably about a hundred of these adult rehabilitation centers across the country um it's a marvelous program and those of you who know like i've been a uh, heard my podcast for a while. We've had several other people, Chris DeBorowitz, uh, Ryan Mayo, who came on to talk about this. Um, but anyways, just to give people a little refresher of what's going on. So the church component is required. So here you have an atheist who's in this program, doesn't want to be there, comes around and then like just responds to the Holy Spirit, even though you didn't know, like you're, you're kind of like a, in the book of Acts. We didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. <laughs> Correct. I didn't. That's absolutely right. I had no idea what was going on. I knew it was profound. I knew right. that much. And I knew I had to take it very, very seriously. I knew that much. And, and wow. in that sense, it was fearful for me. So the fear of, I guess the fear of the Lord was put into me, which is, was, was desperately needed, by the way. Um, and I think all the church needs to have the fear of the Lord. I think we, we wow. try to make, you know, we, we make Jesus so much our best friend that we forget to fear him. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah. you know, but, but it was needed. But at the same time, comforting. I don't want to be, I don't want to go overboard on it. It was very comforting right. for me to know that. So look, what happens is, is that you don't think you matter, right? In this world, when you have this fatalism, addiction gives you a sense, a sense of fatalism. And many of us doesn't have to have addiction. We all have a sense of fatalism that I, my, I don't matter. Hmm. Nothing matters. Wow. And I will tell you, I should back up a, a fraction so that that experience is actually um, fully illustrated. When I was a child uh, at nine years of age, my, my parents had divorced and then my papa died, who I was very close with, my papa died. Wow. And, um, and my Nana, for whatever reason, had been a part of a Salvation Army Bible study and she loved the Salvation Army. 
Now she was a Baptist and attended the Baptist church, but she still loved the Salvation Army. And so because she was a part of this Bible study, which I didn't know anything about at that time, she had the Salvation Army officer that was uh, stationed in San Luis Obispo come and sing at the funeral. Now here I was, and I remembered this because I was, it was such a bad time. I was nine, my parents were divorced. It was terrible at home. And then my papa dies. And I remember her singing. I can, to this day, still remember her singing in the chapel. And I remember her singing. And I think, I remember thinking to myself, here's this woman in a uniform, which I don't understand, but she's yeah. singing. And that singing brought me peace and comfort, wow. right? Her singing did. Now that's important because by the time I get to, I, I had forgotten all this through all my years of abuse and whatnot, but was I sat in that chapel service, when I was feeling now is your time, I had a very strong memory pressed upon me of that event hmm. and that the Salvation Army, that God had put it in my life so that I would understand his sovereignty. Yes. That he had been weaving himself all through my life Amen. so that for this very moment. Amen. So that in that moment, the Salvation Army brought you peace and comfort in, in a way that you didn't understand. And here you are in the most turbulent of times right. where it's make or break, you're either going to make this work or you're going to break. And you know yeah. what happens when you break, you know where that's going. Right. Um, but you're in the right place at the right time with the right people. They brought peace in the time of, 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 of turbulence before. Trust me. Right. Mm. It was now is your time. Right. And so in that sense, as I, as I understood this, now all this happens very quickly, but as I understood it, it meant that I mattered. Think about what this means, okay. right? For an atheist. Yeah, sure. It means that if God is weaving himself through my life, right. winking at me at various points in my life where I have this aha moment that there is a God and he cares about me. Amen. Enough yeah. to actually weave himself into my life. Enough to yeah. basically leave little clues that he's been wooing me to him all along. Amen. And, it, and to lead to this very moment, right? It means I matter, Andy. Amen. It means I matter. It means I, Scott Harkless, this little punk kid, who's lived the stupid life in Fresno, California, who's living out of his car, who ends up in an ARC program, the most inconsequential of human beings on the planet, as I felt, right. matters. Amen. Otherwise, would the Lord of the universe, the sovereign, the creator of all the heavens and the earth, he cares about me. Yeah. He cared enough about me to bring me to this point, right? To woo himself, to woo, woo himself to me to get yeah. to this point. And so it all made sense to me. Yeah. When I realized that, I realized I have to follow this strong urging and leading, and I have to yield. And I remember, because I didn't know, you know, we have this, you know, in the church, we have the sinner's prayer, you know, the, you, you see all these formulations for it. Man, I'm going to tell you right now, I, I, I'm fine with that. That's doctrinally sound. But for the guy that doesn't know anything, yeah, you know, all, all he needs is to yield, right? Mm. And so I pleaded, I let Satan in my life. I said, get him out of my life. I want Satan out of my life. And this is what I was pleading. This is when you went to the altar? Was that, I went to the altar yeah. and I was pleading and crying. I want Satan out of my life. God help me. God help me. Please, God help me. Yeah. That was my sinner's prayer. Yeah, right? sure. <laughs> Who did, you know, I knew nothing. Yeah. And, but I left there uh, and they prayed for me. And I left there just like, whoa, right? Like, oh man. Like now, what do I do right wow. now? What do I do? Right. And, and, um, how do I, what happens now? <laughs> yeah, sure. So I was very grateful, man. I had a lot of good brothers in, in the program, 
the, the, some of them were more learned than I, right? And they deliver you the gospel message in raw detail. <laughs> and, I and I tell Christians all the time, like, you need to be prepared to get a message from the Lord, from the most unlikely of people. Because there was a guy there, George, I'll never forget George, big man, big beard, big guy. And he had accidentally killed somebody. He didn't mean to. He got in a fight and he killed somebody and he went to prison, but he said he was drunk and drinking and drugging. And that's basically, you know, he lived out of control. And that's why they released him into the program right. early from prison because, he, you know, it was clear he didn't mean to do it, but that he, you know, lost himself in the moment. Right. And so he was in the program and he said to me, Scott, you know, I was telling him about this experience and that how I'd, how I'd uh, come to faith but I was still struggling. I didn't understand it. And he said, Scott, you know, Romans 12, two tells us we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So we might know his good, pleasing, perfect will. He said, your problem is you haven't let your mind be transformed. You're holding mm -hmm. on to the patterns of this world. That's wow. your problem. And boom, I said, it's right. He's right. So Romans 12, two has always been my verse. Romans, you know, I love that. Yeah. Verse. Me too. Sacrifice. Yes. So, uh, but that was the first scripture verse that I understood with spiritual ears, wow. right? That I heard and it received in my spirit. And I then realized that I need my mind transformed, that I couldn't be, mm -hmm. I couldn't have all the same types of thinking. I couldn't have the same patterns of thought that I had, that I really had to go. If I was serious about this thing, that it just occurred to me, I had to revolutionize basically the very way I thought about everything. And so I, I committed myself to really intense scriptural study. I asked questions. I was very engaged, you know, from that point forward. But that was the starting point, right? Was a, yeah. was, a was the most unlikely of, of people to deliver you sort of the, you know, the scriptural message that the Holy Spirit used. But unlikely people are used all the time. I had a yeah. housewife. I had a, you know, a guy very unlikely ARC beneficiary. And, and here I am, I stand on the, you know, the seeds they planted. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I've been very, very grateful for all that. So this is like, I wanted to spend a lot of time on this side because a lot of times uh, when we tell a story, you might get 10 minutes, five minutes. It's like, I was, it was really bad drugs, alcohol, all, all the like, you know, just imagine change now, now on to this, but I want, I wanted to get there just to kind of demonstrate what is happening. I think we'll spend less time on this side of the story. So now you have this experience, you hear things with spiritual ears, somehow you get involved with the Salvation Army as your church, and then somehow you hear about Asbury College, as which yes. is now Asbury University. So let's get to that part. Yeah. So I I so I can tell you, um, so I I um I had only a, a 10th grade education, right? So okay. I so I when I got out of the program, I went to the Salvation Army Corps in Clovis, California because it was the only church I'd known, okay. right? It was the only, the Salvation Army was the only church I'd known. And, and I clung to them for dear life, frankly, just so you know. Yeah. And, um, and I just figured if I stay with the Salvation Army, I'll be okay. Right. Right. They understand me. I don't have to be ashamed of, of how I came um, to faith. I don't have to be ashamed of my background and they will, and they've cared for me at this point. So if I stayed in the core, they'll still care for me, which was hundred percent right. To be honest with you, hundred percent okay. right. Right. If you Salvation Army is a humble church. I don't I'm a minister in the Disciples of Christ now. Um, and so I, I don't attend Salvation Army anymore, but it's not for any bad reason. It's just yeah, yeah. opportunity arose and I took it. But um, but the Salvation Army Corps is a, is a is a wonderful church full of humble people, you know, and 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 they genuinely are non-judgmental. Uh, they're the strangest mix of things I've ever seen in, in the church of of holiness doctrine 
but yet un understand what happens in the world, a very keen understanding of what happiness, what happens in the world. So there's a, mm -hmm. there's a, there's a, uh, there's a certain street, streetwise aspect yeah, sure. to almost every Salvation Army person, which is very rare in, in, the, in a holiness church, right? Uh, yeah. So anyways, the Salvation Army had that and I clung to them and I stayed clung to them. And I went back to community college. I remember the I, I remember the first course I took was an English course. I remember the first great the first paper I ever did. I did with the caps lock on because um, I didn't know when to capitalize, <laughs> and, I want, and I was trying to hide it. And uh, and so she gave me a D, I think, you know. And she said, "Next time, turn your caps lock off. Or I'm going to give you an F." And so I came to her and I told her my situation, just like we talked about. I mean, I gave yeah. her a nutshell version of it that I, but you know, that I had basically drank and drugged my way through high school and only got through the 10th grade anyways. And so I had this huge deficit and she did something. I wish I could remember her name, but she, cause she deserves praise for what she did. She did something that was so profoundly helpful for me. She said, I tell you what, now that I know this, you can do all your papers and I'll grade them and I'll correct them and I'll redline them and I'll do all the things you need to do. And then you can turn it in again, and then I'll do it again. And then you can turn it in again, and you can turn it in again and again and again until you get an A. Wow. It meant that she was correcting my paper, one paper, five times. Yeah, sure. Right? But that, she's like, because you have to know how to write. You can't take a psychology course. You can't take a history course. You can't do anything in life if you can't write. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. She, so she was 100% right. It was a fundamental building block that I had to basically reestablish, and she helped me reestablish it. So I did very well. I got all A's through community college with her help, right? Giving me sure. Amazing. Then I went to Asbury College. The way I got to Asbury College was I was reading The War Cry and they had an article um, about uh, Asbury and they had a, how they had a Salvation Army Student Center and how they had a, a Salvation Army officer aligned from yeah. National Headquarters to the st Student Center. And I thought to myself, I need to get out of this environment that I've lived in for so long. Right. My parents were fine, but, it, but it's just, you know, all the... Right. I had too many strings attached to everything. Right. And uh, and I knew I needed to progress in my faith. And I, and I knew if I stayed close to the Salvation Army, I'd be okay. And yeah. so since there was a Salvation Army at Asbury, I figured, and it's in Kentucky, which I didn't know anything about. <laughs> I, I came down. I remember I came out and I told my mom and my, uh, my stepdad and later told my dad and my grandparents, I'm going to Kentucky to go to Asbury <laughs> because I felt like the Holy Spirit really, I don't feel like the Holy Spirit confirms everything in my life. But this I did feel very, very strong confirmation on. And so I just went and did it, you know, and it was the best thing I ever did because all the best friends I've had in life, I basically made at Asbury. The, the Salvation Army was great at nurturing me and all the office, uh, the, the officer there, Major Russell was fantastic. And, and the professors were hugely helpful. Right. Not only were they academically brilliant, but they were just great humans that were genuinely interested in, in me. And so again, the sense that I mattered, right? It was reinforced in the sort of Christian community that I mattered and that my progression matters. And so as I started uh, going through um, Asbury and I did well, I think I had a 3.85 cumulative GPA. I started thinking about going into law school and my mom, I will never forget this. My mom says uh, uh, she was very worried because law school is so rigorous. She was very worried, she was so proud of me and, and I had come so far in like this right, right. five-year period um, from what she was scared of, you know, she was worried that I was going to die. So she was like right. unbelievably proud, but she was worried that a little boy was going to get disappointed in law school, fail, and that this could be, you know, the thing that 
caused me to relapse or go back to that life. And so she said, well, honey, you know, just be careful. And she's just worried and mother's worry and caution. Now I had to think about that and it made me think about it. And then I got a little bitter that I even had to think about it because why can't I go to law school? Just because I was raised in a mobile home and I had this, you know, bad history of, of addiction and, and yeah, everything was a bit of a struggle for me, but why can't I? God saved me for, for, for glory, right? He, he yeah. saved me to do the things that he wants to accomplish. Why can't I? Right. Right. And I remember the Psalms, you know, trust in the Lord, right? Whom shall I fear? Right. What can, what can man do to me? Yeah, sure. Whom shall I fear? Right. So what's my fear? What am I worried about? If God is on my side, who can be against me? So it was a, it was a little bit of a leap of faith. It was a, a rigor. Um, that whole process was tough going to the LSAT, you know, getting admitted. Hey, let me back up. Let me back. So like, I appreciate you keep it moving, but the, that idea of re- the renewal of your mind, you just think of like how that's happening. Like you truly are rewiring your brain in this period here. And with this English teacher at community college, he's like, no, we're going to work every paper. I mean, you're re- like completely thinking about the world in a new light in light, particularly in light of your conversion as well. And then you get to Asbury. I, I know you're a history major working with people like Ed McKinley and yeah. that whole great department of people. I mean, yeah. so, so like, this is a part of that renewing of your mind. And I do want to highlight, you did meet somebody at Asbury too. And yeah, I remember I mean, the day I mean, very clearly. So yes, I, mean, I remember Kristen and I came in together, Colbert at the time. Yeah. And I remember hearing that you guys were going to go on a date. I'm like, okay, that's interesting. But I have never, I still to this day have never seen the contrast in a relationship. Like I remember knowing that you guys were going to go on a date on a Friday night. And then I saw you on Saturday. And when I saw you two together on Saturday, I'm like, they're getting married. <laughs> Not only did they get married, you got married pretty quick. Like within did. seven months. <laughs> we, I graduated and got married in at the end of May when we had only started dating in what, I don't know, was that September, I guess? Or yeah, now? something so, like that. It was like, yeah. that is it, man. So Yeah. I think going to law school may have hastened that a little bit because we didn't want to live apart. Right, yeah, right. The, the poor girl only got to do, do a year at Asbury, and then I took her, and then I went to law school at UC Davis, and, and she went to undergrad at UC Davis. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, I met my wife there, and so I'm obviously grateful for all the friendships I've made at Asbury, but my wife, I'm most grateful for because she's been my, she's been my most loyal advocate that I could have had in life and, and has been a, a great partner for me. And, and, uh, and, you know, and we, we were minute, I ministered at a small church here in, in Anna, Texas, first Christian church of Texas or first Christian church of Anna. Yeah. And my wife, you know, is, is my partner in that. And we, we kind of run it like a core. You're the Salvation Army. You're the Salvation Army of Anna. I'm sorry. They, yeah. <laughs> they don't know that. Wife but... comes from a Salvation Army background and so, yeah, let me, so you go, you go out, you go and become a lawyer and uh, you do that for several years. And then you're like, now you've been 15 years, I think. As yeah, a, financial. Yeah, as an executive in financial services, I spent a lot of that tenure at Bank of America. So I have a very unlikely path for somebody that came through what I came through. Yeah. But I will tell you, um, for me, it's always been never forget who you are, never yeah. forget where you've come from, never forget the power of God, and never forget that uh, he he did not save you so that you could be mediocre. He saved you so that you could be powerful for for him, and that and that could be in any setting, professional law. Uh, personal um, church, whatever the case may be, right? God has sanctified you completely and dedicated you for his purposes, right? So I, I've always tried to be mindful of that. 
and tried to do the best I could with the duties that were set before me. Yeah. Um, and I, and I think that's definitely true in the corporate side. It is certainly true as a litigator on the law side. The interesting thing is I came to the ARC in Fresno and then I ended up at, at the largest law firm, at least at the time, I don't know how large they are now, but McCormick Barstow was the law firm at the time in Fresno. Wow. So think of that dichotomy. Yeah. And so here comes, here comes this beneficiary who, who, who was coming through the program and was now on the Salvation Army Advisory Board Where, okay, uh, interesting. As, as, a, as a lawyer. So it, some of that stuff was deeply satisfying for me that I could give back to the community from which I felt like maybe I had taken <laughs> from, you know, in some ways. Uh, yeah. did, I wasn't helpful, you know, contributing to member of society. Uh, so some of that was deeply satisfying for me. Um, but you always want to serve the Lord. And, 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 you know, I started off wanting to be a Salvation Army officer, but I ended up being an attorney. But the one thing which the very similar, me, very similar. Yeah. yeah, well, it's led me into the corporate executive ranks. But yeah. I've always basically said I'm going to have ministry, right? That was the main thing. So yeah. I've done so many things through the years within ARC. I've done so many things. I've done a lot of youth councils. I've, I've tried to be available to the Salvation Army whenever they needed me um, in a variety of contexts. Uh, because I love the organization. They saved me. I and mean, what can I say? They saved me. And so if there's any officer out there that feels discouraged about what they do, just know you. In fact, I just talked to one yesterday yeah. who, um, whom I love, who was my core officer. And I had just encouraged him because he's at the ARC that I was at. And I said, I said, Major Larson, just remember, there's a Scott in your program right now. Amen. Amen. Right. There's a Scott in your program right now. And, um, and they need you. And you're just the right guy for it, man. You're just the right guy. You're just the right officer to love these people into um, a position of faith and maturity so they can mature past beyond the stuff that they've come through. And, um, and so, you know, I'm always grateful for all these connections that I have uh, with the Salvation Army. Obviously, I've, I have a different ministry footing now, but it's, yeah. all, it's all the church, right? It's all the church, right? At the end of the day, it's the, it's the universal church that we that, that we all coexist in, you know, there's not just one, yeah, you know, there's not one church that got it all right and everybody else wrong. So, uh, universal, you know, universal, church yeah. universal for sure. So, so th- let's just go a little bit of your story. So, when you went and you're in law school, practicing law on the advisory board, but also, you know, attending a Salvation Army church at that time, but then you make your way when you come to Texas in the corporate world, you get there and you, you live a good distance probably from a Salvation Army Corps, but even the ones that you would have maybe gone to, talk to me a little about that. Like, that's just an interesting phase, like trying to, at that point, move away, but still be in ministry and understand that you're, you know, it was through the Salvation Army that God had brought you to salvation. You know, the Holy Spirit was working in that, but yet, you know, you kind of had to make a pivot with your church. Yeah, so we actually did, um, because the Salvation Army was fairly far for us and we wanted our children to be raised in a church that was local yeah and that was the, that was the primary driver of the decision like i said there was never a bad we never left the salvation army right, for any right. weird bad reason or any bad experience or anything like that um it was more just practical considerations and so we went to the methodist church here um which unfortunately have recently burned down the historic methodist church here and we went there for a little bit and uh and then i got asked to cover the pulpit because people knew that I would cover pulpit for ministers. And yeah. so I got asked to cover the pulpit in the church that I'm a minister of now. Um, one of their ministers had moved on, I think back to seminary and one had retired and they just found themselves without minister. And yeah. so I started covering their pulpit for them just, just to do it because they needed it. And, um, and I did that for two months 
And then I kind of said, Hey, you guys, you know, how are you doing finding a minister? Because, you know, I travel a lot for work. I had never intended to be the pastor of any church, frankly. And, uh, and I got a full-time job, which I, you know, yeah. which needs me full-time. And, uh, and they said, can you do it? And I was like, man, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if you want me to be your minister. Cause I have to work. I have to travel. I have, you know, there's so many yeah. things that I have to do, but it's a small church. So it's, it's manageable from that perspective. Um, but it's been the joy of, it's been a wonderful joy for me and my wife because we love the church. It's a wonderful church. It's a historic church. It's a beautiful old country church, kind of like what you'd expect if you saw, if I could, I wish I could show you a picture of it, but it's, it's, um, it's what you might expect. You could Google first Christian church of Anna, Texas. If anybody's watching, you could see what we're talking about, but, um, it's a, it's a wonderful church full of wonderful, humble people. And, uh, and I've been doing that for eight or nine years now. Wow. So yeah, long time. Um, and, and that's different than what I used to do, by the way, having pastoral duties is much different than just more coming in, covering yeah, being a guest or, speaker. Or, or, or just being a guest speaker. Yeah. You know, you, you have all the stages of people's lives, right. As they, you know, medical events, you know, deaths in the family, tragedies, divorces, marriages, I mean, births, baptisms. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's just any number of things that, that come up, you know, that, that, um, you have to handle and you have to do it well that's what yeah. god's charged you with so it's it's a it's an interesting thing i do think that the that many ministers that come through seminary or many that have retired are going to have to look at doing sort of what i'm doing working yeah sure because these little churches that dot across the countryside there's no way they can afford a full-time right it's a, it's no impossible. for sure the bible so, i mean this is uh at wesley biblical seminary we have uh, uh any number of our students are already bivocational as students working full-time jobs, going to school, but I anticipate, they, and they anticipate, many of them, that that's what their life will be like once they are serving in church full-time. I mean, it won't be full-time in the sense, like, it'll be a bivocational ministry, and interesting thing is happening in the broad Methodist movement. I'm not talking about the United Methodist Church. I'm talking about any denomination that flows from the evangelical revival of John uh, John Wesley. So yeah, Wesleyanism. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes say Wesleyan, sometimes we say Methodist, but when the, the shift comes between the global Methodist church and the liberal versions of the church, what will end up happening is there's going to be a lot more churches than there are pastors. And that's part of the, the, the call right now for our institution and other Wesleyan historic Wesleyan institutions is to like, ensure that we're able to help find and train pastors to be in roles like this. So like, like a church like yours would be like a great example of what we're anticipating. There's going to be a lot of need for that. So I, I say that kind of as a call to people too. this. Uh, I mean, Scott's had a, a successful, I would say success, successful career, but yet is finding fulfillment in ministry um, through the, a, a, in full-time kind of pulpit ordained ministry this way. Yes, yes. I, there's no way I could serve like a full-time pastor does. I, I partner with a lot of our local pastors. I'm very close friends with the Presbyterian minister whom I love. Wonderful man. Yeah. He's reformed, but, you know, I still love him. And, uh, <laughs> but I, I do. And, and, you know, he's, he, I look at what takes his day versus what takes mine. And I, at times I lament that I can't do what he does, right? Because he's such a great servant to his people, but there's no way I could do that. And financially, I couldn't do it. It, it would be wrong to my employer. To, to do that. And so I have to, you know, manage both worlds. Um, but people have to rise to that call. They're going to have to yeah. rise to that occasion. 
Um, God needs leaders in the church to basically shepherd these smaller congregations. And I think the experience of a smaller congregation, now, obviously I've been to Salvation Army Corps, apart from the Pasadena Tabernacle, uh, you know, they've all been smaller core, which I like the intimate, close, personal experience because you can really yeah. be in the weeds with people on their journey. And I think in, yeah. a, in, a, in a very rewarding way, help them through it. So I'm a big advocate of these smaller churches. I think people have really yeah. wonderful experiences in them. And I think the God needs his people to, to answer that call. He does. And they have to be open to it. And it, it's going to be a great, it's a need now, but it's going to be a progressing and greater need as time goes on. Yeah. I mean, drive through the countryside. Yeah. There's a ton of little churches that can't fit more than 60 people in them. I mean, if they wanted to, they'd be bursting at the seams. I'd be bursting at the seams if I had, you know, more than 80 people in there. I'd be, we literally couldn't put them in the church. I'd have the fire marshal on my back. <laughs> but what do those people do? Yeah, sure. Right. So, uh, and I think people, I think God is going to raise up leaders for this time. I certainly felt like I've answered the call and he's been faithful to me and the congregations has been wonderful. Yeah. Um, so I'm grateful for it. Great. Well, Scott, we're going to have to finish up here, but I'll, I've been asking this questions with this version of my podcast, more to story is like, they're more just now this whole podcast is more to Scott's story, but is there something about, I mean, you're a unique guy too. Like you have a, like there's a boomerang right behind your head there. What, <laughs> what's, what's more to the story? What more to the story is there to Scott Harkless that we didn't hear here? I think the only thing I would say, and this goes to my wife, because my wife is a, is a wonderfully diverse person. She is unlike any person I've ever met, which is what, which is what I love about her. My, we have a ranch, and, yeah. and, but I don't ranch on top of it. I, 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 my wife does all that. So we have, I don't know, we have 20, 30 head of cattle now. Do you? We just, yeah, we, get, we just got more acreage to add more cattle on there. But I don't do that. I have enough to do. But, you know, I'm... I, <laughs> you know, my wife handles all that. So, you know, I'm, it, in fact, I just talked to her and she said, I got to go move. Hey, you know, wow. I got to go move because we have cattle dotted in various pastures and we're preparing a 120 somewhat acre ranch to, to receive all the rest of the cattle. Um, but yeah, so on so top what do you of do everything, with the cow, cattle, do you, do you get some process for yourself to eat or do you sell yeah, it? Or? Yeah. Yeah. I got three refrigerators full of beef. Right. Wow. So, yeah. And so, and then we've sold some, you know, we've sold some to just friends locally. They'll, they'll, they'll split a cat, a cow. Uh, and, and so, and then we'll probably sell some calves this year. We'll probably have more calves. So we'll probably raise up some calves and just sell the calves. Wow. Um, it, so it's, uh, yeah, we never really planned on that. I could tell you a lot <laughs> of stories about that. I could, we don't have time for that, but yeah. So there's, there's more, I don't know. Yeah, I, I might come and buy something for you because Abby and I are really into grass-fed beef. Like we, we're that's what we high, have. High yeah, protein have. diet. So uh, the yeah. idea of getting that like fresh from somebody that that's we haven't crazy. bought meat in forever. So we've wow. used our own beef. We've raised our own pig. We we slaughter our own chickens. You slaughter them yourself. My wife does. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what I'm telling you. My wife's a unique person. I know. So. Look, I'm not surprised by that. I'm yeah. not surprised. Like, like I know her, I know I don't know her like you do, but I know her enough to know, like, I'm not, she would grab a chicken and cut its head off. I'm no surprise. Well, she don't, she doesn't there. like it. I will say this about okay. her. She doesn't like it, but she, but, but she'll definitely do it. And she's processed most of the meat that we eat, frankly, in our house. Wow. Even what I hunt, you know, from, from, in terms of like deer hunting, she's the one that processes it. Yeah. She's unlike any person you'll ever meet. <laughs> <laughs> she's a wonderful and if you saw her, you'd never know it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. There's this very pretty pastor's wife, right? No, she's out there, 
you know, messing with the cattle and processing the neighbor's sheep <laughs> when she does. <laughs> so it's wow. Uh, yeah. That's so I think that's a unique more to the story moment. Well, Scott, thanks so much yeah. for your time. Thanks, and Andy. Love hearing your story, and you've been a, such an encouragement to me through the years. And you know, we'll have to have a talk talk more theology, doctrine, politics some other time. But you, you, that's part of the. You have the, me the back, and we'll go through it all. Too. Yeah. Well, God bless you. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Andy.